Hi, my name's Joe Houghton, and this is the Plus One Podcast. My guest today is Tucker Colburn. Tucker is founder of the Independent School of the Mid-South in, I think, DeSoto County, Mississippi. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tucker. Um, he's, he's host of another podcast called the DIY Education Podcast, and he's also authored a book, The Philosophy of the Independent Mid-School of the South, Thought, Action and the Means of Self-Acquisition. He holds four degrees and is working towards number five, planned finish, what, sometime next year, 2022, I think? Um, ideally. ideally, yeah, but doctorates in education often take a little bit longer, don't they? So, uh, so <laughs> um, your two-word description of yourself was subversive and provocative. So you had to come on as a guest, I mean, with, with a two-word description like that. Um, welcome, welcome, Tucker, and thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. I, I do, and I've always described myself as very subversive in the classroom. I don't like to just take everything at face value. You've got to give me a reason for why we're doing this. Otherwise, it, I'll just make up my own, you know? Cool, cool. And so, well, you know, if we, if we take that as a, as a jumping off point then, um, something attracted you to the podcast. Um, I mean, I've grounded this in, you know, this principle of plus one. Of, of universal design for learning and continual improvement. And does that does that sink in and gel with with your philosophy in some way? It does. The the idea that we're completely finished learning at 18 or at 21 uh, should sound absurd. That yeah. every day you have an opportunity to learn something should be very encouraging to everybody. And mm. it I think it boils down more to the the mode of delivery or the method of, of instruction than, than anything, but no, absolutely. Learning every day. That's, that's what I do. I tell my kids, I'm, they, they always freak out when I say this, I said, them, I'm usually reading between five and 10 books at a time. Mm -hmm. And they always ask, how do you do that? I said, well, you can do it too. You, you keep track of your family members, what they're up to. And you watch probably more than one television show. I'm sure that you're watching different series at the time and you keep all that in your head. You can do it. Mm. I just like to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in that pre-interview survey you filled in for me, there was a lovely quote from which I hadn't come across before from Homer Lane and A.S. Neal, always be on the side of the child. So, I mean, yes. you, you've got you've, you've started this school, this independent school. And I mean, that that in itself is seems very strange because, I mean, I grew up in the UK and now I live in Ireland and there are a few independent schools and i think you you were influenced by summerhill and there's the yes. steiner schools and 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 stuff like that so i mean tell us tell us kind of about your approach to education and teaching and and then how that turned into starting a school um and and you know that story yeah well so i i'm i was very much influenced uh in my educational philosophy by what Neil did. And when you start chasing down, how did he form uh, Summerhill and, and how, what, what led into it, he references, especially early on in his work, uh, this, this guy Homer Lane all the time. Uh, it is a person with whom Neil studied uh, and, and gained his philosophy on education, but it was, um, it, it was really more of a, uh, of a practical thing for Neil than anything. 
and, and you... uh, not everybody knows about Summerhill, so maybe for those sure. who, who aren't aware of Summerhill, just, just tell, tell them what that is. So Summerhill is a school that has been in continuous operation for, this is their 100th year of operation, I believe, um, in, uh, in Suffolk, I think, in, in mm. the UK. And they are a democratic school. Everything that is done in that school is done by the choice of the individual. Now, because it is a school, I, I think I'm understanding this right, in the, in the British or in the UK system, um, you can't operate a school without their say so. And you have to, unless you're, I think, unless you're a religious school, you have to provide all of the curricula that the state schools would require in order to pass your GCSEs and things like that. So they offer all of that, hmm. but they require students to do none of it. If they wish to pursue, say, biology, they can. If they wish to study math, they can. If they want to take their GSEs, they do they make the decision to sit down and figure all that out, but there's nothing required there. But they go a step further in saying that if it is the students who are the large population of this place, the teachers being a very small part of it, um, they should have the voice in how their lives at that school, because it's a, a boarding school and to some extent a day school. Mm. But since they're living there almost entirely 10 months out of the year, they should have a gigantic say in what goes on. But so, so Neil went so far as to say that one person has one vote. If you're a little person or a big person, you have a vote in these things. And they conduct a weekly meeting and they create laws and they adjudicate them and they enforce them and do all these things. Um, and just have, it, Neil's philosophy was about freedom to choose but not license to do whatever you want. So, so you, democracy, not anarchy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was the idea. He's always say freedom, not license. You have the ability to choose for yourself what to do. You don't have the liberty to impose your choices onto other people. That, okay. that was his thing. So that was part of it. The other thing that really inspired me was um, were, were my own uh, grandparents and my own mother who are teachers or were teachers. Um, I'm, I'm the third generation in the family. Okay. So I have this very broad perspective of how education has changed since the late 1920s up till present and how things used to be. Um, Cause my grandfather was uh, very interesting in that he started out in, he stayed in pretty much the exact same school district um, in North Mississippi for the entirety of his career and went from, uh, teaching elementary school. He's taught at every, every level of school. So from elementary, middle and high school and has been a teacher, a principal, an assistant superintendent and a superintendent all within the same district. Uh, so he, he understands he, or he understood, he just passed away a few years ago. He understood everything about how the system worked from the bottom to the very top. Mm. And so having his perspective on how things were and having my mom's perspective of how things were from the late seventies to the very early two thousands about how the, the shift and the dynamic happened of you used to be able to have uh, a lot more choice and a lot more ed uh, educational opportunities outside of the classroom. But here in the last 
20 to 25 years or so, the effort to keep everything contained within the building, in particular, everything contained within a single classroom at any given time, has forced this kind of uh, pressure cooker situation for students who can go through 13 years of school, um, all the way through secondary school, and straight into college, and then walk out with a couple of pieces of paper in their hand and say, now what? Hmm. To, to, to live a quarter, almost a quarter of a century and then to, uh, following what everybody tells you and then at the end of that saying, okay, now you know what to do should sound absurd to anybody who hears it. Having 20 years of direction suddenly cut off means that you have people who are now in their 30s and 40s still living at home because they have no idea what's going on and they don't have any idea doing that. So. And then a, a big giant part of this also too was um, the idea of the one room schoolhouse where you had m many grades, many ages, all mixing together, learning from one another, teaching one another. And the idea was the, the teacher was sort of the orchestra leader or the maestro of all this, you know, just saying now it's time for this. Now it's time for that. Everybody know what to do. Here we go. I thought early on, because I teaching is, uh, it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do growing <laughs> up, because I saw what it took from everybody. You yeah. know, I saw the commitment that it required. Mm. I just didn't want to do it. But when I decided to actually pursue it, I said, I want to know everything about teaching I possibly can. Mm. So I bought books and books and books and just read and read and read. And I knew that at a certain point, I would have to do some teacher education uh, and I knew that I would get the technical aspects about it, but I was, I was curious of what did we do that we no longer do? Because arguably, 100 to 150 years ago, we were able to take kids off the farm, put them in a classroom for a year or two, and give them exceedingly excellent uh, reading fluency, basic mathematics skills, and uh, and they would be able to contribute to society. They'd be able to make decisions for themselves. They'd be able to have the eloquence to express what they needed. I have this wonderful book. I wish I could remember the title. It's up and I can see where it is on my shelf and yes. at home, but um, it's a, it's a book of letters written by the common soldiers, you know, corporals, privates and so forth from uh, various wars from 1865 until Afghanistan recently. And to look at somebody who's 15 years old writing with an eloquence that a graduate student now cannot produce and knowing that that person probably only ever read two, maybe three books in their whole lives and had a, had monthly access to newspapers when, when it was, when they were available to, you, you start to wonder how is it that we could do that on a, on a large basis, hmm. uh, but we can't do it now in 13 years. There was something in the large group, uh, multi-age, mixed background kind of environment that produced something that we're incapable of producing now. And when you think about the fact that the people who were leading those classrooms didn't have master's degrees, didn't have doctorates, didn't have bachelor's degrees, they had an eighth grade education, largely speaking, they oftentimes the teacher of any given school was somebody who graduated from the school the year before from the who finished the eighth grade the year before and was entirely capable of leading a class of 40 
to to equal or better success than she achieved because it was often a, a, a woman in that case yeah. and I, I just I, I found myself fascinated with how that was possible but the interesting thing is is when you research it historically you're doing it forensically because what they did every single day was so routine to them it did not occur to anybody hardly to write down here is how i do things yes it's like it's like if you ask somebody how often do you document the precise way from start to finish that you brush your teeth you know, you don't, you, no. you know, the, you get a dentist recommendation every once in a while, but you don't physically have journals of how you did that. I mean, not to say that it would be, you know, you, you can make your own decisions as to whether or not you want to journal your, your daily uh, hygiene rituals, but it's unlikely that many people are doing that. So it was, it was kind of hard to find. You had to piece together little bits by little bits. And what I realized was the power of having decision, the power of having access to people who knew more and knew less than you was a way to reinforce, was a way to uh, tap into um, uh, resources that were just not available when you're in a room full of your same age peers who are on the exact level that you are. Mm. So, And when did that change? When did, when did we move from the small group school into more regimented, you know, same, same age classes and all that kind of stuff. What was the, what That's, was the, the impetus was, uh, began in, uh, in, in Massachusetts in the 1850s. Okay. Um, Massachusetts has always had public education since I would say like the 1630s. Like as soon as the Winthrop fleet began bringing people in mass from England to, uh, to Massachusetts, they said, we need a system of, of education. And so they'd always had it and they'd always made it mandatory, but it was never written into, or it was never really codified into law at the beginning of the United States. But in the 1850s, uh, one person who's her has heralded as the father of modern education, Horace Mann, saw what they were doing in, um, I think it was in Germany hmm. and said, that's what we need. We need to separate the kids. We need to get them started young. We need to, you know, build them into these, um, uh, good followers and we'll separate, separate out the leaders as we go along, but we need largely people who are followers. And with a country that was based upon the idea of you do what you want to do, Taking that away was a, a huge struggle, even in a, even in a state that had um, mandatory public education for 200 years by that point. Mm -hmm. There's even stories of, of people in remote areas, you know, kind of fighting off the government to keep that from happening because they said, well, well, no, we'll teach our own. We'll, we run our own schools. We don't need your school. We have mm -hmm. ours. But it was a slow transition from. Eight, about 1855, let's say, until the very last state in the union passed uh, uh, the compulsory education, which was in 1918 in uh, in Mississippi, my home state. Oh, wow. Um, and so, but about that time, also too, you started seeing large-scale consolidation. There was a time in, in this country when you had 100,000 school districts and they were all community school districts, um, never more than 
one or two schools in them. You know, if they were towns pretty close together, their two schools might be in a district or something like that. But now we've whittled it down to about 10,000 now. And um, what you what they found in this consolidation was they said, okay, we want things standardized. We can't do it if we have 100,000 independently operating entities. We have to consolidate you know, from the top down. But what happens is, is you say, okay, well, I'm going to combine your four small schools into this larger school, but we can't have, it, it would just, they would always sell it to the parents as it's much easier if we just separate out by grade. So that way everybody gets their first grade, everybody gets their second grade, and then we all move on together. And it made sense at the time, but what we're seeing is a steady decline in um, in the ability to keep with one pace. When you had kids self-pacing, yes. they might go slow for a little while, but then once they really get it, they can go faster than the teacher can possibly teach. I've seen that for the last five years. Mm. Every, every, uh, every class that I've ever put on their own pace, I start them out and just make them make sure that they know where they're going. And then they kind of check in with me here and there. And then finally they're off to the races faster than I could ever do it. And I wanted to say, I always tell my, my teaching colleagues because they always ask me, how is it that you get your kids to do all this? They always, how do you get your kids to write this way? How do you get them to investigate this way and do all this thing? I said, I said, I don't do anything except for get out of their way. They know what to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And how old are your kids? Uh, the school, what, what's the age range of your school? There's not really a, a range per se, because. Uh, but I, I, I prefer getting kids in who are younger than, say, 11 or 12. By the time they're starting to be what in, would traditionally be, traditionally be a, a middle school, they're sort of there's it's a little bit harder to kind of deprogram them out of the out of the need for me to tell them what to do because right. when you give a when you give a five-year-old say hey go run have, do whatever you want learn whatever you want or not they know what to do because they have yes the imagination is still there and they can still say hey look what i found hey look what this is and you know but 11 and 12 year olds after that point they don't really start doing that they may interest themselves and they can do that but my my vision is to service kids from, you know, five to 18 or 19. It's just that early on, we want to make sure that they're kind of getting the culture of what we're doing here much more than are they doing all of their classes and stuff. It's been kind of a tough sell telling parents, Hey, listen, I'll offer anything in the world. I, I offer all the stuff that your public school or any of your private schools would offer, but I'm not requiring any of your kids to do that. And you can tell them that you want them to do the math or whatever, but you're not there with them every day. If no. they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. And I'm completely fine with that. I'll, I will work with them on what they do turn in. And if they turn in something that's a, a long novel or something like that, say, well, let's go through it. I want to read your novel. I'm going to see if we can make it better. But then we take the next step of saying, this is great that you've written this, or this is great that you're doing that. And what are we going to do with it? Right. We're not just going to put it on a shelf. How are we going to get it into the hands of other people? How are we going, you know, can we set up some readings? Could we, you know, I mean, can you put a board down on the street and start hawking your book? You know, the idea is 
turn what you're doing here into the life that you want to have and constantly explore your options. Okay. So when did the school start? I mean, you, you, it sounds like it's still relatively new, is it? Are it you... is very new. It is very new. Um, it is starting and we are sort of gathering up steam uh, now. In my mind, it started the second I set foot in the classroom uh, for the very first time. But um, in practicality, it is starting this year. And so right. we are, uh, we're, we're, we're gathering our, uh, we're amassing our forces to be able to uh, to conquer the education world as we speak. <laughs> so how many students have you got enrolled? How many teachers? And, and tell us how you've organized yourself. Is it just you? I, I, is it a, it is just a, me. It's just you at the moment. It's just me at the moment. Um, I, I would like for it to be me exclusively. exclusively uh, I, I have considered the idea of creating like satellite campuses and placing teachers in there, but not. Um, I, I have a very good relationship with uh, with a couple of the universities here. I'm I'm actually in the in the city of Memphis in Tennessee, huh. and we we have. Uh, some amazing teacher education preparation programs. And what I would like to do at a certain point is just sort of talk to maybe some of the professors and say, uh, especially ones that had me, you know, and say, who do you got in your classes? That's like me, you know, let me, let me talk to them and let me see if we can get something going. Um, but, uh, no, we're, we're, we're gearing up actually for, uh, enrollment, uh, for this coming fall. Um, you know, I tell my kids, that I'm teaching right now in a, in, a, in a very unique laboratory school here in Memphis, um, that you should um, you should work in a place in such a way that you learn, like treating it treating it as a learning opportunity, and only work for people as long as you have to until you can get your own thing going. Yes. You know, the idea of keeping a job until you're 40 should sound crazy. Hmm. You know that. It, it served our country and it built our country, but it's not what started our country. The idea was in the, uh, you, you would always, you know, you might apprentice with somebody to learn their skill. You might work for somebody until you saved up enough money to open your own store, or your own restaurant or something like that. But until the turn of the 20th century, most Americans in some way or another worked for themselves. But then when large mass scale industrialization happened, then you started seeing people say, hey, listen, you need a job. And then they say, hey, listen, you need an education to get that job. And then mm -hmm. they said you need to stay in for 13 years before you can get this job that will barely sustain you and keep you on a factory floor for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. it didn't it sounded crazy. It should have sounded crazy then. But at the same time, we have to remember the economic situations mm. were different, you know, it, it, providing providing food was kind of a big deal back then you know so you wanted to be able to eat indeed indeed so i mean the gig economy you know has it as it's grown up and the 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 rise of the micro entrepreneur um yeah and people having multiple income streams um that this plays into that kind of this is he absolutely the other part the other part of what ISM is, is entrepreneurship. You know, you should be able to walk out of any amount of time 
in education uh, with the ability to support yourself without the need for looking for a job. You should, if you don't, um, if you go for 13 years into a place, into full recognizable adulthood, Yes. And leave it and have no way of creating or generating income other than somebody giving it to you for the work of your hands, you know, or, or even the work of your mind. They are going to make anywhere from five to 10, maybe even 20 times the amount that they're paying you off of work that you're capable of doing. So just outsmart them, cut out the middleman, cut out the boss, figure out what they're, what they're doing that they're really getting paid for by getting you to do the work. It's very circular and nobody really looks at it that way. But what is a, you know, what is a job at a restaurant? What's the difference between a job and a restaurant being the owner and being the guy at the end of the line, you know, uh, bussing tables or, or even uh, cooking the food. The difference is knowing how to run a restaurant. Yeah. But if you go and work in that restaurant and learn how to do it, ask the boss a million questions, be that boss's best friend and figure out everything that they're doing. Hey, how did you start this? How much money did you have? Who did you bring in? Did you buy Did you just ask a million questions? If you treat it as an education, then the second that you have the ability to start one, you can start as many as you want to. I have a friend in my hometown who worked in restaurants for 10 years and as soon as he said, I'm going to open my own restaurant, I said, I said, it's been, it's been long enough. You certainly should. And within, I think two years, he had five open in two or three different cities. Mm. And, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't come from money. He didn't, you know, funnel in lots of money. He just figured out a system of opening them up using one to pay for the next. Yes. Now he slept on a lot of couches for a while, but once they were all up and running, he's making well into six figures. And I, when I told my class about that recently, they, you know, they were pretty impressed by it. And I said, I said, he does not have a college degree. And I know that he did not finish high school. I said, so what, what makes you think you, the mantra of go to school, go to college, get a job would work a hundred percent of the time if this guy didn't do any of those things, mm. you know, he, he went and got it. He did it in reverse. He went, he got a job, then got his education and then started working for himself. Wow. Do you think everybody can be an entrepreneur? I think it would be unfair to say yes or no, but I think it would be more unfair to not present that as a viable alternative to what's traditionally taught. Um, the reality of, of almost any country is that 95% or so on average work for the other 5%. Yes. So it, 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 it behooves everyone to know, well, what is it that they know that I don't, why is it that I'm the one working for them? You know, and it boils down to just a very few simple concepts. Um, be willing to pay out or be willing to pay for others to do what you are unwilling to do for yourself. Yes. Not that you can't do, not that you're unable to do in any way, but that you don't want to do. Yes. If you have a goal in mind, it's much faster to take a smaller piece of it and get somebody else to do it. And if you've got the patience to understand or, or to push through failure uh, time and time again, uh, eventually when success happens, you will have a toolbox of 
unbelievable proportions in terms of how to manage things. And keeping it out of the conversation, I think is probably the most unfair thing in the world. Um, it's not a, it's, it's hard to push people into education and further into education when you say, actually, the things that you want to do or the things that might interest you, you don't even need to finish high school to do. That, that's not good for the public narrative. That's not good for the education narrative. And it would put um, many high school teachers out of, out of a job if, if kids figured out, oh, wait a minute, you know, I can start my own thing and I don't need to be here. Yeah. See you later. Are you running into bureaucratic challenges? Um, do, do some are some people looking at you and saying, "Who the hell's took a Colburn?" And you know, oh, yeah. and like we've got this education system that that's been running for a hundred years now, and we've put millions and millions of people through it, and and Tucker comes along yeah. and he knows better. Um, <laughs> I, I I see both of that. I see bureaucracy a little bit, but I also see the. Um, it, it, it's not really their fault when they say things like that. It's you, you've been, it, I, I'm, I try to be as delicate as I can whenever I talk with teachers and say, um, look, I, I don't say what I'm saying or what I'm trying to do is better than the system in place. What I am saying is that at present, my alternative does not exist and I want to be the one to provide it. I right. don't want to belittle what you do. I want to say, if something is not there and I know how to provide it, then I want it to be there for those who can and, and do indeed want to, uh, uh, to go. But when it comes to seeing, yeah, we've had this, we've had this in place and I went through it and my parents went through it and my grandparents went through it. I say, um, I say, all right. I say, you know, yes, millions of people have done it. I said, but, the people who built the country did not do that. The people who were smart enough to build the country, whether it was in drafting declarations or, or writing constitutions or, or coming up with the rights that we all enjoy and the laws that we are obeyed and, and are protected by, those are people who did not do exactly what you're wanting every kid in America to do. And beyond that, the people who made the effort possible, meaning the guy on the bottom, the, the farmer, the, um, you know, the, the foot soldier, the, all these things, none of them did what you're asking for our, what our, you're asking of our 60 million school age children to do. None of them did. And yet here we stand, not because of, not because of we had a, a vision for something that would happen you know, 150 years down the road, but we had a, we had an understanding of the situation as it was at present. Yes. And what people don't do is look at the situation at present. They say, well, reading scores are down, math scores are down. And the answer that they always give is we don't have enough money. Hmm. Well, if you go back and look, because they did keep records of this because it was, uh, it was necessary. The records of how much was spent on any given public education say in 1850, it was a paltry sum, very small. Um, the teachers never made enough to have their own place to live. They lived a month at a time with families of the children that they taught. Really? Yes. 
Oh my goodness. This was a, this was an incredibly common practice and you can see some of the benefit uh, for the, for the teacher in that uh, at least once a month, your problem, whoever you're having a problem with, if you're staying at home with them, they weren't going to act up for a month. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I mean, they, they, they would get by with so little and create so much. I don't think the answer is flood this economy with, you know, billions like my the district that i work for right now its budget it's one of the biggest uh biggest districts in the country one of the top 25 districts its budget every year is something like three billion dollars 200 plus schools wow um about about eight thousand teachers and about one hundred and twenty thousand students but the reality is is if you divide out the math for every for every student, it's something like uh, I'm going to say like eighteen to twenty thousand dollars per student is mm-hmm. being paid in, <clears throat> but perhaps per student about a thousand dollars of that goes to a teacher. Yeah, so where the rest of it goes is kind of up in the air. But on direct instruction, it's less than less than ten percent. So if you were to say what would be an ideal solution. Well, if you've got 100,000 kids, just divide that by 30 and say, you know, put the, put the teachers in charge of their own classroom again. Pay them, I'm, I'm going to blow everybody's mind and say, pay them 20% of the money that you take in from, from each kid. You know, you keep the other 80. I don't need the other 80. Just give me a place to go. Give me kids to teach. And I will kind of re- report to you the findings uh, according to the old way of doing things. But it, it also means large amounts of retraining. And it's not really a, a thing that's ever really going to happen, no. which means that if we want to see it more often, we have to do it independently. And in many states, all states have private education laws that allow for the creation of schools. Um, this is my next question. More- yeah. So, I mean, yeah. can you do this kind of, you know, because I can't imagine somebody in Dublin setting up a school um, right. and, and well, saying to the, to the education authorities, um, no, no, you know, we don't need you. Uh, I'm just going to open right. up a school and, and we're going to set a shingle out and, you know, the kids can come and we're going to let them do what they like. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can see all the it's, school inspectors kind of descending like flies. And, uh, <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting. So, in uh, in in Ireland, in the UK, and in Ireland, in the UK, um, and indeed uh, most other places, the education system is uh, centrally run by the the country, so yes. it's a state kind of thing. But here in the United States, it, there is no federal education system really there's nothing from essential we have a, a department of education we have uh, various laws regarding you know federal use of funds and so forth but there is no nationwide curriculum there's no nationwide anything we, we determine so very like oh yes a levels like in the uk that everybody no. does or a leaving cert no. in ireland or whatever no, no, no. Uh, it's it's up to the individual state, which was why uh, I guess it was around ten years ago when they were pushing the Common Core. 
Mm. They were having to get it, try to get it into all of the states. I think they got, I think the most they got it into was 47 of the 50 states. Uh, and now like, this would be like, say, the Bologna agreement in Europe, where all the universities right. kind of established the the ECTS, the common um, kind of system of, of credits that, that exactly your course. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And so uh, and the common core is starting to drip off uh, quite a bit because they they realized very quickly that um, as much money and as much effort went into it, it didn't service the needs of the individual states. And they found themselves um, modifying it so much that they just went back to either they went back to what they had, or they said, okay, we're going to take what we had and this common core and make it into a new thing. And um, which is fine, but, but each state has its own department or its own school district, like state school district. And so um, as a result, each state, because so much is left to the states to figure out for themselves, each state has to come up with its own private schooling laws and homeschooling laws because all 50 states, I think since the 80s, all 50 states, it's legal to homeschool your kids. Right. Okay. And so they had, to, they had to start making provisions for, uh, for private schools as a result of that because they didn't like, the states didn't like the idea that there are only the schools private schools that were in existence now got grandfathered in to the system mm. and that there was no room to start something new. So your options were go to an existing private school, go to the public school or teach your kids at home. There was no middle ground for it. That's where a lot of the charter school stuff grew out of as well. Okay. <clears throat> but in, in Tennessee, I live in a part of, of Tennessee that is on the border of Mississippi. So the DeSoto County, uh, Mississippi and Shelby County, Tennessee are kind of right up next to each other, forming this big metro uh, area. In Tennessee, you can only have certain kinds of private schools and they have rules to follow and so forth. In Mississippi, it's you just tell us that you're a private school and as long as you're not doing anything untoward, everything's fine. You pick the number of days you want to teach, you pick the hours you want to teach, you know, uh, what you want to teach. They don't really care. Uh, they, they haven't made provision for it. And, and largely because of a couple of different things. One is that the private schools that they have are almost all subsidized by one or another church. Yeah. So the tuition does not become astronomical. Hmm. And the other is that they have done their best to make sure that the local schools are as good as they can possibly be. And they keep it in such a way that uh, culturally you want to go to whatever that school is because odds are your parents grew up there and went to that same school. So they put in sort of a cultural influence into it. Um, whereas in Memphis, the tradition of private schooling has been very diverse and um, some of it's secular, some of it's religious. And you're starting to see more and more private schools spring up uh, with the influx of knowledge about what a micro school is or, um, or, or tailoring your education to specific kinds of kids needs. Um, I always say what I do is open to everybody but I can only accommodate certain things and it's everything begins with a conversation. What is it that you as the parent need? Okay. Now I know that. What is it that you as a child need? Mm. Okay. Now I know that. Now let's see if we can figure out if, if this will work. I think a lot of parents 
have an expectation. It's crazy because the accreditation process that they want uh, private schools to go through, which is not required by Mississippi or Tennessee, but they want you to do it. Effectively, the accreditation process makes any private school exactly like a public school. So I don't want accreditation because if I wanted to open a public school, then there's ways of doing that too. I had no interest in that. And if I liked the way that things were run in public school, I, I wouldn't bother with it. So the accredited, like when you start hearing like fully accredited private schools and fully accredited homeschool programs, I think you missed the point and missed an opportunity. But the parents, they want to hear it. Are you accredited? Are you not accredited? If I get the opportunity to say no, and I have no intention of it whatsoever, and here's why, they start to understand a little bit. But it's it's crazy that how much information is available, but nobody knows to look for it. Yeah, or to chase it down further than people just don't read. Level. People don't read anymore, and people don't study anymore. No. Really. I mean, it's a soundbite. Yeah, I mean, it sounds trite, but it is a soundbite generation. And if it takes more than fifteen seconds, a lot of people won't engage. So, I mean, it, a, a parent hears about your school and says, "Oh, look, you know, my kid's not doing well in in the current system and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. This this Tucker guy looks interesting. I'll 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 give him a call." So what's, what's the process? What's the conversation? How do you, how, you know, I, I, how do I get Danny into, into your school? <laughs> and my Danny is 10 years old. <laughs> okay. uh, by, by a plane ticket, number one day. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, after that, uh, you don't want to be on a boat, I promise. Um, the, I would say this, it, the conversation always begins with, a, a question in terms of what is it that you were wanting out of an education that you're not getting where you currently are? Okay. In asking that question, I, I'm, I'm hoping to pull little pieces of, of both the parents' personalities, but the parents' understanding of how the kid learns. So is, how they... is, I mean, are you looking for parents that come and say, well, my, my kid isn't, isn't, academic and he's not good at exams and he hates the regimentation of, of the current school um and and i'm hoping you can kind of do something different with him or is is that there's <laughs> well no that's a that can be that is a, a definite part of it i think but the real the reality is is i i i have one class that i teach the, the school has exactly one formal class. And if nobody wants to go to it, then I don't teach it that day. But I'm gonna, <laughs> I will be prepared to teach it every single day. It is a class that is extremely rigorous and one that is designed more to not, pr- it, it's designed to produce work. But the, the idea is that it's designed to get kids to start thinking for themselves and how to apply that into everything that they do. And I teach it through a process called um, evidence-based inquiry and conclusion first writing. Right. <clears throat> I teach it through writing just because that, that's my thing that I'm, I'm very good at teaching writing. And I, I do it in a way that's the complete opposite of everything that's done here. As a matter of fact, the, the job at the lab school that I got is because of how incredibly efficient this method is uh, that I teach. Uh, like I can teach, I get kids every year who can barely string a sentence together. And by the end of it, they're writing at the, at a college level. Okay. Wow. And, and it all, it doesn't have anything to do with teaching the writing part. It has everything to do with teaching the approach and the thought process. And I say, look, I teach, 
I, I said for years, I, I am an English teacher, but I don't teach English. I teach you how to think. I said, what I teach you, you can apply it into any class, any endeavor you want to. It's a way of approaching things from an evidence and conclusion standpoint, rather than what do I think? And let me find some evidence that goes along with what I think. Uh-huh. That's, you know, if you follow the evidence like a police detective might to to the conclusion of how did this crime happen? You know, how who did it? Why did they do it? And all these things. If you're chasing the evidence down those paths without a suspect in mind until the very end, you are like more likely to find the person who actually committed the crime than yes. you are <laughs> saying, I think it's this person. Now, let me go find some evidence. Yes. And it, and it's all then confirmation bias and, and stuff. So so yes. you don't really buy into the fake news thing then. Um, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't read. A lot of the news I'll read is about what new Marvel movies coming up. Everything else, I don't really care about that much. Yeah. Um, finding a way, an efficient way of examining the world and seeing opportunities for what they are, seeing problems as things to be overcome, not things that are in your way, but things to be overcome is hugely impactful. And for the system that I teach or for the class that I teach, it is drawn from every realm of, of academia. It's and if you apply it one way, it's the scientific method. If you apply it another way, it's mathematical problem solving. If you apply it another way, it's historical analysis. And then once the kids, it usually takes about nine to 12 weeks or so. And once they realize what it is that we're actually doing, because they just, they stumble around in the dark and I'm completely okay with it. I always have a smile on my face and I just keep saying, keep trying, you'll get it, you'll understand. And then one day they'll say to me, you mean all I have to do is this, this, and this? And I say, yeah, but that's just like when we did this, this, and this. And I say, yeah, that's what I've been telling you for 10 weeks. And this is big eyes and they light up and they say, oh, that's what you were talking about. And then from that point on, they just blaze through it and they start saying, hey, look, I can do it with this and I can do it with that. I said, I know, I've been telling you. Go on, keep going. <laughs> All right, so so tell me the story of a of a kid who, who who had the light bulb moment and where they went with it. Sure, I had a student um, in my second year of teaching who was a very. Um, this was really just after I started sort of developing the system of teaching because I brought it into my own classroom first. I I asked him. I started noticing in his writing that he was doing the things that I was asking him to do before I asked him to do them, mm-hmm. and I knew that 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 was kind of dawning on him where all this was going, what the big picture was and how to do it. And I, I said, um, one day during assignment, I was walking around because once you get going, you don't actually have to teach anymore. You just walk around and let the kids go do what they're going to do. And, um, I was marking around and, and he said, uh, he said, you didn't put anything on my paper because I normally I keep pens that are not any other color except for red. I call them encouragement pens because kids don't like to see red on their paper. All right. <laughs> and he said, you didn't put anything on my paper. And I said, uh, I said, I don't need to. He said, well, you hadn't even read it. I said, I'll read it. I said, but I don't need to. I said, <laughs> the last three or four that you've done, I haven't needed to do anything. You've understood exactly what's going on, which means that you have, you know, are becoming proficient in the skill. Yeah. I said, I'll tell you how to get better at it. I said, but I don't have to grade what you do with everybody else. I said, as a matter of fact, you're my co-teacher from now on. I said, you're exempt from all assignments. You don't have to do them. I said, I may give you something on your own to increase what you're doing, 
And he looked at it. This is a quiet kid, you know, didn't. And then suddenly the class size was, you know, it may have been 20 to one with me being one. Now the ratio is down to 10 to one. Yeah. He's, he's helping out and walking around and doing all this kind of stuff. And the rest of the kids started saying, well, how come he doesn't have to do any of the work? And I said, he figured it out. And now he's helping you. And that, that kind of got them saying, you mean I can do, I can get out of, like, I can, if I can figure out how to do this, you know, kind of thing. That's when I start getting in the kids who didn't want to do any of it, really digging their teeth into it. And by the end of it, whenever I'd give an assignment, they just knew as soon as they finished the three or four, you know, sort of deputy teachers would walk around and make sure that everybody got it. And it, it was within within two class periods, they were producing work at a, such a consistent pace that I said, okay, you guys know how to do it now. So I'm not going to give you any more of those assignments. We're going to start digging into some really, really good stuff. And um, with him in particular, I said, I, I looked up his grades. Uh, he was a, a seventh grader who was taking algebra, a very smart kid. And I said, uh, I looked at his grades and he was doing really well in physical science and algebra and of course his history class. And I only give out hundreds on everything. So he's doing fine in my class. I said, uh, are you, I said, I said, you can write like a, like a college student now. I said, you, you do not have to, he was in the seventh grade. I said, you don't have to finish high school if you don't want to. If you want to go to college, you can do that right now and I can help you do it. And he, he was, uh, his, his family had uh, come into the United States from, uh, from Mexico, I think it was. And so I, I had a, a, little, a lot of back and forth with his family trying to figure things out and, and how to do it. But what I did do for him, uh, or rather what I showed him how to do and he did for himself was he went and took a college placement exam at the local community college. And they said that he had done well enough to where he could start at any point as soon as he wanted to. And I asked the admissions officer, I said, does, I said, does he need a full high school transcript or can, you know, does he need one from an accredited thing or whatever? And they said, no, just something that says that he's finished. And I said, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what he's doing now. I, I, the pandemic has kind of spread everybody to the wind. But my, my daughter was very similar in that she's an artist who's very dyslexic. So going to high school was an absolute torture for her because they, the high school she went to only had one art class. And it was basically for seniors who needed their fine art before graduating. So she could never get into the class. I said to her uh, when she was... 14 or 15, I said, you can, you know, whenever you're ready to stop, you can stop. Yeah. I said, you can stop and then you can go and uh, I said, I'll give you a high school diploma. I said, but, so you wouldn't believe how easy it is. I said, so you can go to community college if you want to. You can apply to a university. I said, you can spend two years just working on your art, put a portfolio together and apply to a really good art college if you want to. And I said, but I said, she said, oh, what if I miss my friends? And what if I would? I said, I haven't seen friends from high school in 20 years. I said, you, your friends who are your friends now are friends because you are all forced to be in the same place. Mm -hmm. I said, once you start making choices about where you go, you will find people in, in an entirely different way. Hopefully that's more beneficial to you. But it, I think as soon as everybody gets sent home for the pandemic, she said, all right, I'm done. I said, I, I just want to be done. She said, I, I spend seven hours a day in a place that makes me miserable, mm -hmm. you know, that, that mm -hmm. I can't do what I want to do. No. And I have to stay up till all hours of the night if I want to work on art. I can't do it in class. I can't do it on the weekends because I'm too tired. Said, okay. Mm -hmm. Then I wrote her. 
I wrote her a narrative transcript and she did her application to the local college and they let her in, no questions asked. So this whole graduate from high school thing, if you want to go to college, you're just wasting your time. Just going in when you're ready. And, and, and at least the colleges have a system where you can demonstrate a level of ability. Yes. And then you're in. Yes, they do. Yeah. And yes, that's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, this we're running out of time, and I mean, it's crazy because I, I could just carry on listening to you for hours. And I mean, I've already made a note. Okay, I want to I want to come back to you in about a year's time and do a second. All right. You know, after your first year of full operation, if you like, because I think this is an amazing story, and it would be great to kind of pick up and see how you get on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make. <laughs> entry for this time next year as a call tucker again <laughs> very good your, your, here. your plus one was get to know your students and their parents as best you can yes so just finish us off with that because i think this is great my as i told you my grandfather was an administrator a principal or he was a principal a, a teacher and all of these various jobs but when he was the principal of the of the high school in Tupelo. Whenever he had a troubled kid, kid who was acting out or getting in trouble constantly, he would he would say, come on, you're going with me. And they would leave campus in the middle of the day, which by the way, if you tried to do that now, you'd be zip tied and pepper sprayed and tossed mm -hmm. under a jail somewhere. But he would take them off and he said, uh, he would drive them to a, just somewhere in town because the kid didn't really know what was going on. And all my grandfather would tell him is, listen, when we walk in, I want you to shake the man's hand, introduce yourself, and then just kind of nod along. And if he asks you a direct question, you answer very simply. That's all I want you to do. Of course, it's confusing the kid as to what's going on. He was in trouble. Now he's off campus and all this kind of stuff. So let's say uh, my grandfather brings this kid, Dave, we'll call him, to the grocery store. And they go in and, uh, and my grandfather will say, well, is, uh, is John in today? And the person will say, yeah, let me, let me go get him. John being the owner of the grocery store. And when he gets in there, John, how you doing? It's good to see you. I wanted you to meet my good friend, Dave. He's uh, very interested in the idea of starting his own business. And he actually talked to me the other day about starting in the grocery business. And he asked me if I knew anybody who was a successful grocer that he could talk to. And I couldn't think of anybody better than you. And the guy said, oh, well, absolutely. I'd, I'd like, you know, what what can I do? And he said, well, I was wondering if uh, if Dave could come in maybe in the afternoons and uh, maybe ask you some questions and, you know, help you stock and do all these kind of things. You can pay him if you want to, but that he's really just here for the experience and to be able to ask you questions. Oh, oh, I'll, I'll pay him. I'll pay him. It'll be fine. You know, just come on in. You can start tomorrow. I'll, I'll help you out. The thing was, is the person that my grandfather was taking him to this grocer was somebody who he had taught 20 years before who was just like that kid in high school hmm. who had turned his life around, who had found somebody who, or a path or something like that. And when my grandfather passed, it was in 2016, it was a big, big turnout to his visitation and everything. And, uh, and I can, I know that I talked to five people who had a similar story than that, who would always say, you know, if your grandma, your grandfather hadn't taken me out and done that, that one time, I don't know where I'd be. I have no idea where I'd be. When he would tell me stories like that, I would say, you know, because my mind and I'm thinking they're going to call the cops and there'll be, you know, a dragnet looking for you kind of thing. He said, listen, 
this was before I even considered becoming a teacher. He would say, you know, if you have the parents on your side and the kids like, but most importantly, respect you because you demonstrate that you're on their side, that you have their interests at heart, you can do whatever you want. The second you break that trust, it's gone. But if you can consistently demonstrate that, you can you can do whatever you need to do in their in the student's best interest. And he told me that probably four or five years before he died, and nearly uh, nearly a decade before I ever stepped foot in a classroom. I guess he just saw something about me that I didn't see yet. But that his way of operating has gotten me out of I don't know how many jams with administrators. Every single year, about the time that the administrators in my other schools figured out, oh, wait, he's not teaching the curriculum that, that he's supposed to do, and he's not going along, and, and he's not grading the way that we're asking him to, and he's not doing all these things, about the time they build him a full head of steam, a parent will come in to the office. I never ask him to. It just seems to happen. A parent will come in and see me and say, oh, Mr. Colburn, I am so so thankful of what you have been teaching to these kids. They're, they're doing stuff I didn't even do until college. This is amazing. I can't believe all the questions that my, my daughter is asking or my son is, he's starting to, his own business and he wants to tell me all about it and he's doing all these things. And, and I just, I, I, I'm so thankful that you were here in the school. I always see the administrator's face just kind of sink because they're like, oh great, now I can't do anything. Um, it, it's very helpful and um <laughs> and really has gotten me out of hot water a few times. Yeah. Wonderful. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've come full circle, the child-centered approach, mm-hmm. haven't we? The, uh, you know, look after your oh, kids. Oh, yes. This, is, this has been an amazing hour. Um, yeah, I, I had you. no idea what to expect, you know, and, uh, and we've had philosophy and we've had deep thought and we've had, you know, history and, and all kinds of stuff. It's been it's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for sharing your your philosophy and your passion for for the you know that it's the the reality of the teaching space. Um yeah. It, yeah. it it can be what you make of it. As long as you don't always accept reality as what it is from the top down. If you can take a look around on the ground, you can see quite a bit more opportunities everywhere. And, and I'm, I'm happy for the few kids that I have every year. And I'd like to be able to reach out to more of them. But I think you're kind of getting an idea of what class in my it is kind of like. I just, I don't always talk so much, but when I do, I get really animated about it. No, it's it's been it's been brilliant, and uh, and I hope to be able to keep in touch because it, it you know I, I'd love to hear how it goes, and um, you know find out how the how how the the plan works. It's uh, it's been brilliant. absolutely. Thank well, you. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, and yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> absolutely, thank you. Okay. <laughs>